Good morning. Good, good to see you all again. If you would, please turn with me to Mark chapter 5. Perhaps you've heard about the idea of the universal acid. It's the, the acid that just keeps consuming, just keeps burning through. You know, it burns through the glass that it's in and it burns through the table that it spills on and it burns through the concrete floor and it burns through the dirt and it just keeps on going. You know, the idea of this acid so potent that it just keeps going. Well, I thought about that a little bit as I've been thinking about our time in Mark's gospel because Mark has been putting Jesus before us as Lord over everything, as the one before whom no power can stand. In the face of sickness, when Peter's mother had a fever, he raises her up. And heals her fever. In multiple cases, Jesus is confronted with demons. We just saw previously that he's confronted with a legion of demons, and at his word, he rebukes the demons and they flee. Before that, he was in the face of a life threatening storm. And with a word, he calmed it, and the sea had to obey him. Jesus is powerful. And there's nothing that can stand in his way. And we might begin to wonder, like that universal acid, what can stand before him? Just how powerful is this Jesus? Well, as we continue in Mark chapter 5, we're going to continue to see just how far his power extends. We've previously been in verses 1 through 20. Now I'm going to pick up in verse 21 and read down through the end of the chapter. Now, I remember telling you before, maybe you remember, that Mark likes to use sandwiches when he writes. He, he brings before us one part of a story and another part of a story and something in between, and that's significant. We're going to see another sandwich in Mark's gospel here. Um, we're not going to focus on the middle of it this week. We'll focus on that next week, just so you know. But let's, let's start into our text, and, and uh, we'll, we'll see the text as we come through it. So verse 21, Mark chapter 5. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned, in, uh, turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was yet speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any farther? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, 
Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to come with him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the children, child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was about 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray. Father, you are the God who created everything. You spoke and everything came into being. You sent your son into this world. And he spoke and his creation responded. He spoke and evil melted away. And he could speak and reverse death. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live as your people in light of your power and your glory. That you would help us to trust you with every detail of our lives, knowing that there is nothing outside of your power. Help us to trust you. Help us to entrust our very lives into your hands and everything beyond that, Lord. We ask this. We pray that you would help us to understand your word, to be transformed by your word, by your Holy Spirit, and to live lives differently in light of it. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. We've seen in this story that, in fact, Jesus' power extends even over death. And in light of that, I think Mark is teaching us here that Jesus, as Lord, is greater than death, and so we can trust him. Jesus is the Lord, and he is greater than death, and so we can trust him. As we look through verses 21 to 36, we can see the call to trust him in life. And then from 37 down to 43, we can see the call to trust him even through death. Well, last time when we were in Mark's gospel, in the first part of chapter 5, Jesus dispossessed a legion of demons. And uh, the result was that these demons went out, went into a herd of pigs, and 2,000 pigs drowned in the sea. Uh, in response, the people in the town asked Jesus, please leave. They begged him to go. And Jesus set sail, gets in the boat, turns around and goes. I don't know, was there floating pigs around him as he was heading out? I, I don't know what the scene would have looked like. I don't imagine 2,000 pigs just disappear. Uh, and so he goes across, now back across the lake, he goes to the west side, uh, in the Decapolis, the people begged Jesus to leave, but as we see him come to the west side of the lake, people flock around him again. People have heard the reports about Jesus, and they want to be around him. And we can assume Jesus is probably teaching. It seems that every time that Jesus has a crowd, he doesn't waste the opportunity. He's probably teaching them at this point. And in the midst of what has become a commonplace scene in Mark's gospel, uh, we're introduced to a man named 
Jairus. Now, it's not common in Mark's gospel for somebody to be named. Certainly the disciples, the apostles are named, but significant people are generally named. And he is, in fact, a significant person. He's a man of prestige. He's said here to be a ruler of the synagogue. So he is a leading member of society. He's honored in his town and community. And uh, this dignified man comes to Jesus, and, and what does he do? Comes up to Jesus, and he casts himself down at the feet of Jesus. And he implores Jesus earnestly with a request. Now, this is a striking act of humility. Uh, he has become humbled by his life circumstance. And we see his desperation in his request. He says, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well. He is the dad of a young girl and she is at the point of death. <laughs> this dignified man has a weakness. His daughter. He loves his daughter and he's about to lose her. But evidently, just like the crowds, he has heard about Jesus He's probably heard that Jesus has performed many miracles. He's delivered people from sickness, from disease, from demons. And he's thinking to himself, perhaps if I just come to Jesus and ask him to come to my house, maybe my daughter might survive. You know, I think we see faith evidenced in this man even at this point. He believes that Jesus can do something about his daughter's condition. And he is willing to ditch his dignity to beg Jesus to come. You know, this throwing himself down on the ground is probably not something he's accustomed to doing very often. But he displays his desperation and his faith in Jesus when he does this. He must have been thrilled to hear that Jesus was in fact going to come. He was going to come to his house. And so they set out. Now, you know the difference between driving on 169 at 2 p.m. and at 5 p.m., right? Evening rush hour. Uh, there's nothing like several thousand people trying to head in the same direction to slow you down. And here, Jesus is the reason for the traffic jam. Everybody's wanting to be around Jesus. They're, they're wanting to be close. And it's just got to be painfully slow progress trying to get anywhere if you're traveling with Jesus. I bet Jairus would have wanted them to sprint to his house. Uh, I bet he would have liked for Jesus to, to part the sea of people and get moving, but it is slow going. Now, we won't spend any time here today. This is the middle of the sandwich that I was mentioning earlier. Uh, but Jesus goes so far as to stop and interact with this woman who finds healing from Jesus. Now, I don't know what's going through Jairus' mind at this point, but I would have to guess that a sense of urgency is heavy on him at this moment. And before this episode is even over, messengers come from Jairus' house to come and tell him that his daughter has died. And his heart must have sunk to his feet at this point. They encourage him not to bother the teacher any further. Don't, don't take up any more of his time. The chance is gone, it's over. Mark tells us here that Jesus overhears this conversation. In fact, Mark uses a word that has a couple different meanings. And in fact, in your translation might show this if you have one of the older NIVs. It says that Jesus ignored them. And likely that might, both ideas might be here. 
he's ignoring the report that he's given, and he has also certainly overheard what's been said, but he is not accepting what they've said. Jesus calls Jairus not to give up. He says, do not fear, only believe. I mean, wow. He is calling Jairus to a very hard task. Jairus has received the worst news, but Jesus calls him not to give up hope. Sinclair Ferguson, in his commentary on Mark here, points out that the way that the father's faith is being tested along the way, and this is certainly quite the test. He has believed, and now he's being called to believe even further. Now, God uh, certainly does that at times, doesn't he, in our lives? He does test our faith. In fact, he often does that. No matter how long we have known him, he brings tests and challenges. Even if we think our faith is impervious to challenge, it's not. Satan will always try to break our faith, try to consume it. And God will try to strengthen our faith in him. He will bring things into our lives that will require us to trust him. Never think that you are beyond having your faith tried. But pray that God would sustain you in every trial and then fight to be faithful. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Peter says, In this you rejoice, though that's their hope of eternal life, this imperishable life that they've been given. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Although we might really dislike having our faith tried, the result is worth it. When our faith is tested, and if we don't wilt, it results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. On that day, we will rejoice and praise and give glory to Jesus Christ all the more. And our faith will be vindicated on that day. We were no fools for having trusted in Jesus. And on the day when every eye will see the reality, our faith will be vindicated. The greater the adversity in trusting now, the greater the honor will be for having believed through it. God is glorified as trustworthy, first and foremost. When we trust him, he is glorified as trustworthy. And there's honor for us in having believed him in the face of such adversity. And what is Jairus' response? He's been called not to fear, to believe. What's his response? Well, he continues. He continues on to his house with Jesus. I think that is a sign of faith, which continues even as it is tested. It can be very hard to trust God. I find this all the more as a parent. Uh, it's, it's hard to trust God with our children. Uh, I never knew how much I would need to trust God in becoming a parent. Uh, there are so many things we seek to protect our children from, and there is so much that we simply can't. Uh, I've heard this a few times. Somebody said, you can't protect your kids from their own choices. There's truth in that. With my four-year-old son, um, I can still do that in large measure, uh, but that's not lasting for long. 
both external dangers and internal dangers confront every child, and we can feel so helpless as parents trying to protect them. Or we can be utterly consumed in the attempt to do so. I, I hate to have to admit it, but I still go up and check Noah every single night to make sure he's still breathing. You know, it's, you'd think I'd learn by now, but... Our love and our care for our children is natural, and yet we need to entrust them to God's hands, even as we seek to be faithful in the role that he has given us. We can't make our children believe even. Um, They will have to love God for themselves and follow him, and we need to be faithful to put him before them. We simply can't shoulder the weight of God's job. We want to do the things that he calls us to, And then we want to entrust it all to him. Jesus invited Jairus to not fear, but to believe. And he invites us to trust him in that as well. He invites us to trust him with those things that are most precious to us. I I would have to imagine that for Jairus, his daughter was the most precious thing to him. He probably would have given his own life for her. He certainly didn't mind scrapping his dignity in hope of finding healing for her. Jesus called him to trust him with those things that are most precious. And he calls us to do that as well. Those things that are most dear to us, God calls us to put those in his hands. He may not answer everything exactly the way we would like or might ask, but he calls us to put all of that into his hands and trust him that he is good and he is working for us. And this is what Jairus has done with his daughter. He keeps moving on in faith. Let's, let's move now into our second point. We'll continue in verse 37 through 43 as we see a call to trust Jesus even through death. When they arrive at the house, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. Uh, the rest of the crowd and the other disciples, they're left behind. Jesus selects down these three. And the scene at the house is a commotion. People are weeping and wailing loudly. Now, doubtless, some people from the community have come to mourn. Uh, in, in Jewish society, those major life events are community events. Marriages, the villages involved. And in funerals, likewise. There, there's joy and there's grief together. Uh, but I guess, as, as I've, I've done research and seen this, there, there was also a common practice in that day to hire professionals, and maybe you've heard this before, to, to hire professionals to come and to help mourn. Now that strikes me as a little funny. You know, I, I hope that people don't have to hire somebody to be sad at my funeral. Uh, but apparently that was a thing back in that day. Uh, in fact, uh, the rabbi Judah, who's writing in the next century, his, his writings have been preserved. Uh, he says, even the poorest person in Israel should hire at least two flute players and one wailing woman. Now, I'm not sure exactly where you go to hire that wailing woman. Uh, is that on Angie's list? I don't know. But again, this is, this is a thing. So people are here, and, they're, and maybe this is going to make a little sense of our passage here. Uh, they're here. And they're, they're weeping and they're wailing. And Jesus asked them, why are you up in arms? What's the commotion? Why are you wailing? He says to them, she's not dead. She's sleeping. And the professional weeping turns to derision. They turn from crying to laughing. 
and they laugh at Jesus and mock him. Uh, they did not give the slightest shred of credibility to Jesus' statement. In their minds, they knew better. One commentator pointed out that these professionals knew what death looked like. They were used to the sight. They didn't make mistakes. Nonetheless, Jesus pushes them all out of the house, and he takes his three disciples, he takes this girl's parents, and they go inside where she is. They enter into the room. There they all are. And there she is laying down. The last time Jairus saw his daughter, she was alive. And now there she lay lifeless. By all human accounts, the only thing that should follow this moment is embarrassment for any supposed healer and for grief for the family. But Jesus is no fraud. Jesus comes face to face with death in this moment. He is confronted with the enemy that has plagued every generation of human beings since the fall. He comes face to face with this enemy. Even today, the best secular minds can do is try to dismiss death and say, well, it's natural. It's just the way things are. Brothers and sisters, death is not natural. It's not natural. It's not the way things are just should be. It's not the way that God had intended this world to work. Death is an invasive species, so to speak. Death is profoundly not natural. It is a judgment on sin, and it's a curse that lingers on this world. It is one thing that no man, no matter how strong he is, is able to defeat. The strongest man that lives, will still die. A man can take a life, but he has no power to give a life. Think about the way that our courts work. A, a, a judge could sentence a murderer to death, but no judge can sentence a murdered man to life. He can't restore life. We don't have that power. Humankind is powerless in the face of death. And here, at this bedside, Jesus stands before this young girl. And death is there like a ten-foot-tall grizzly bear on its hind legs, saying, this one is mine. What are you going to do about it? And what is Jesus going to do about it? He's going to reign, and he is going to triumph as Lord, as he always does. He takes her by the hand and speaks words of life to this little girl. He says, Talitha Kumi, little girl, I say to you, arise. The word here, little girl, may even have an endearing sense to it. Little sweetie, a little darling. She has no choice in the matter. She wakes up and she gets up. She starts walking around, Mark tells us. Jesus commands... And she responds. And goes on to say, give her something to eat. She is completely restored. Mark puts before us the reality here that Jesus is Lord even over death. Not even death holds power over Jesus. While death suffers an embarrassing defeat on this day, it's not the worst for death yet. A day will shortly follow that death will sink its teeth into Jesus himself. 
Jesus will yield his life on the cross in payment for our sin. He will take the curse of mankind upon himself and he will die in our place to make satisfaction to God for our sins. Death will think briefly that it has won. But the author of life cannot stay dead. Jesus breaks the jaws of death and rises to new life in his resurrected body. And that's not the end of it either. One day is yet coming when death will have to cough it all up. A day is coming in which Jesus will call all of the dead and everyone will rise again. We will all pass through the final judgment and some will who have believed in Christ pass to everlasting life and those who rejected him will pass to everlasting death in the lake of fire. Revelation 20 verse 14 says that even death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire. Brothers and sisters, this is the way that we have to think about death. We have to keep these truths in our mind when we are confronted with death. And we have been, as a church family, confronted with death recently. We have to keep this in our mind. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has triumphed over death in his resurrection. And because of that, we will too, if we believe in him. We need not fear death. We need only believe the one who has conquered it. Paul says, when the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death has come from the fact that we were condemned under the law as sinners and worthy of God's eternal punishment. Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 15 there, he says that the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus called this little girl, he will call all of us one day. He will call us, he will lift us up, and we will live. And so we trust him even as we wait. Now we certainly hope that Jesus will return before we close our eyes in death. Certainly we hope that happens. And yet, if he calls us to trust him, even as we pass through death, we won't stay there. Death is like a miser with holes in his pocket. He can't keep anything. He has no power to keep anything. Of course, I'm personifying death here. Death is not the final word for us. We will rise again. And even before we rise again, Paul tells us that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we think about our text here. What an incredible day this must have been for Jairus and his wife and his daughter. Mark tells us here at the end that they are overcome with amazement. Their daughter has been restored to life. Jairus' faith has been blessed, and I have no doubt his faith has been strengthened. This whole story serves as an encouragement for us to trust Jesus, trust him in our lives, trust him with our lives, and to trust him even through death. He is Lord over everything, and not even death has the power to say no to Jesus. As we end, I want to read the lyrics to a hymn that I love. I've read some of it before. The hymn is called... It is not death to die. It is not death to die, to leave this weary road, 
and join the saints who dwell on high, who found their home with God. It is not death to close, the eyes long dimmed by tears, and wake in joy before your throne, delivered from our fears. It is not death to fling aside this earthly dust, and rise with strong and noble wing to live among the just. It is not death to hear the key unlock the door that sets us free from mortal years to praise you evermore. Death is not the last word for the Christian. If we must confront it in our lives, if we must pass through it, it will not be the last word. The last word will be Jesus, who says live. And we will be together with him and with one another for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord, you are great. There's nothing in this creation that has beaten you, triumphed over you. You are great over all things. Jesus, you have yielded your life in death. In payment for our sins so that we could have life. Thank you, Lord, that we are not under your judgment to receive the penalty that rebels deserve, but we have been adopted into your family. We have been given life. Help us to live as people in this joy that you've accomplished and to live in the victory and the freedom of fear that you have brought for us. So pray you help us to live this today and this week we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.